around stage a lot. Today, I may at times sit. Wasn't feeling so well last night, but if I gain confidence, I'll just go ahead and stand up. But if I pass out, my notes are on here, and you guys can just read them. And so, but apart from all of that, we're going to find ourselves today in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. So if you want to you open your Bibles and, and, and get there with me, you could uh, load your Bible. If you have a hard copy, because it smells like an old library in here, uh, you can open your Bible, which would uh, seem pretty appropriate, I think. Um, and so we're going to find ourselves again in James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. And so essentially what we're doing is we're going to be closing out uh, uh, James chapter 3. And if you're just joining us, we've been in a series called Faith in Action as we have looked at the book of James. And ultimately, the book of James has served as a really great book for us to walk through as a church, ultimately because uh, the man who is writing this letter to the church, uh, we believe to be G- uh, Jesus. Jesus's uh, half-brother, Jesus's little brother. His name is James. And so he's writing to the church. And when you walk through James, and I've said, said this many times, but again, if you're joining us or you're catching up on a few missed sermons, uh, James is immensely practical. Um, if you read books like uh, Galatians or Romans, even Ephesians, who are written by the Apostle Paul, he tends to be very um, deep in light of doctrine, He tends to go into these really big, heavy theological concepts. And it's not that James doesn't, excuse me, and it's not that James doesn't see that as important like Paul does. But uh, the context of James is that he is writing to a church. He is writing to people who already should have a lot of doctrine, who should understand really good theology. And ultimately, he's, he's calling them out. He's challenging them in light of their faith. Put simply, they know a lot, but unfortunately are not doing a lot. And that's, that's ultimately James's uh, goal as he walks through this letter to the church. On top of that, what that means for us as we walk through James, um, I said this week one, one of the challenges that you might encounter as we walk through James is that as he begins to expose what it looks like for you and I to walk out our faith in the daily What might be exposed is that we may claim to belong to Jesus. You may claim to serve and follow Jesus, but your life has zero fruit. I think one of the hardest things about working and walking through James is that should you uh, be convicted, one of the things that we might come to find is that you have believed all your life that you're a Christian, and sadly you're not in light of what James is is saying and tackling. In this section, in the last section actually that we covered, we walked through, two weeks ago, we walked through the power of the tongue. This week we're looking at wisdom. And then next week at the start of chapter four, it's going to be the the harshest section of this letter that, that James is writing And he's been kind of building up to this since chapter one, kind of talking a little bit about trials and temptations and what that looks like. And he's been talking about what it means to be double-minded. And right now what he is doing, he is expanding on his argument. He is building on this giant argument. And ultimately the conviction again is going to be, man, the conviction should be an evaluation of our lives in light of, is there fruit in my life if I say I belong to Jesus? If I claim to belong to God, is my life marked 
by obedience and evidences of grace? That's kind of the hard question that we need to ask ourselves as we work through this. So here's what I'll do. I'm going to jump right into the text. I'll pray, and then we're going to park in chapter 13, or excuse me, in verse 13 for just a few moments. So let me read this section. It's five verses. I'll pray, and then we'll talk. Here we go. James writes, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, spiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we unpack your word, my my simple prayer, Lord, is that uh, you would send your Holy Spirit to be at work in the lives and hearts of your people, Lord. That hearts would be softened, that ears would be receptive uh, to the message that we find in your word, that I would be set aside, and ultimately it would be your Spirit speaking through me. Lord, we pray that as we, or I pray that as we unpack James and as we continue to walk through James, especially some of these harder sections, that we would either fall on our knees in humility and in worship of what you've done and who you are and who you say we are, or that we would be led and compelled to repent of our sin and trust in your son Jesus. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. All right, so we're going to park for a little bit in verse 13. What I love about verse 13, what I love about language, particularly in James, is that he opens up with a question, but it's a rhetorical question that he opens up with, right? He opens up by saying, uh, who is wise and understanding among you? And rhetorical questions aren't necessarily meant to be answered. Usually what tends to happen is the person asking the question will then go on to answer, And that's exactly what he does. He goes on to say, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And these are some really incredible uh, areas of scripture that we're going to unpack. But before we look at that, here's what I need you to know, right? There is a difference between wisdom and knowledge. There is a difference between wisdom and knowledge. And we can look at several things. For example, you can know a lot, but not be wise, but you can't be wise without having knowledge, right? One of the other things that we look at in terms of differences between wisdom and knowledge is that knowledge can be and leads to information. Wisdom, if done correctly, leads to transformation. Knowledge is truth and, no- and wisdom is knowing what to do with truth. Knowledge is intellectual and wisdom is behavioral. You see, one of the things that we unpacked when we were walking through Ephesians, right? If you guys remember that sermon series, when we were walking through Ephesians, one of the biggest themes that we walked through in Ephesians was what you believe should shape how you live. 
What you believe should shape how you live. And what you do is a reflection of who you claim to be and who you claim to believe in. Right? James takes it a step further in the practical. Additionally, by him opening up with this rhetorical question, many will look at it and will begin to uh, address the theological side of the question. But here, let me tell you about the verse 13 and the question James is opening up with. He is not looking at this question and he is not asking this question theologically. He is asking this question practically. He's essentially beginning to call the church out and say, whoever is wise, come out and step out and show me what that looks like. Because what he goes on to say is, that conduct and wisdom or humility and wisdom are married. They're together. They don't go one without the other. In fact, James's point in verse 13 is that true wisdom is marked by two things, works and humility. Works and humility. That is what he is saying in verse 13. And essentially what he's doing is he's setting the tone for what he's going to talk about in verses 14 to 16. So he says that wisdom is marked by two things, wisdom, or excuse me, uh, works and humility. And then he adds another word toward the end of it, right? He says, uh, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. That word meek is really important, right? Meekness is really important. It's another way of saying humility, right? And oftentimes, particularly in Greek culture and even in Western culture, when we're looking at humility, we think that that is weak, We refer to humility as something that is weak. We refer to humility as something that is passive. We refer to humility as someone who lacks confidence or simply doesn't know what they're doing does. Yet Jesus, through the scriptures, emphasizes meekness and humility. In fact, he sets that as the standard. And so if we're going to define meekness in light of verse 13, what I would say is that meekness or humility is trusting in God and being set free, check it, being set free from self-promotion. Being set free from self-promotion. That's going to be really hard. And I'll tell you why in verses 14 to 16, right? Verses 14 to 16, he opens up by saying, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. In this section, uh, actually in this section and in verses 17 to 18, what James is going to do is unpack two kinds of wisdoms. One is biblical, one is not. And he's going to start with the one that is not. Right? He's going to start with the one that is not. And what he opens up in this section by saying regarding the one that is not biblical, what he ends up uh, saying in this section is he's going to ask you to evaluate your heart because when there are two particular affections that take root in your heart, bad things are going to happen. And those two things are bitter, excuse me, yeah, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It's a process. He goes on to say, if you are rooted, if these two affections are rooted in your heart, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, if these two affections are rooted in your heart, what's ultimately going to happen, what you're going to portray, what you're going to live out is going to be a wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Feel me on that? earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So, so let's break down each one of them. And remember, we're breaking it down because you might find yourself, you might find yourself entertaining one or two or both of those affections. 
Bitter jealousy, man, you want what others have. Selfish ambition, you're motivated by selfish desires. And he goes on to say that it's either earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And so what he means by earthly, here's what he means by earthly. He means that whatever it is, whatever wisdom that you're operating in, when it's earthly, it means that you're not only not leaning on your own understanding, but you love really good advice and the good news is absent from your life. Good advice is something you love to talk about. Good advice is something you love to receive. But when it comes to the good news of Jesus, it is absent from your life. And so the wisdom that you operate out of is earthly. Maybe the wisdom that you operate out of is unspiritual. So it goes from, uh, it goes from earthly to, to unspiritual. And the word unspiritual literally means soulless. It lacks a soul, which means that you operate in the flesh. Now we throw that word a lot in churches, right? You're operating out of the flesh. My flesh desires these things, right? What does that mean? What does it mean when we're talking about our flesh? And it's not necessarily the skin, but what we are talking about when we refer to the flesh is your old self. That when we're operating in a wisdom that is unspiritual, that means that we are operating in a place of who we used to be. That's what it means when we're talking about operating in a place that is unspiritual. That who you were before Jesus, who you were before Jesus rescued you, or who you are. That's what it means to be operating out of a place of unspiritual wisdom. And then he goes on to say the next step that happens, it goes from earthly to unspiritual, and then it dives into demonic, or he dives into demonic. And what he's meaning by demonic is that what happens is that as you operate out of earthly and unspiritual wisdom, you rob God of his glory. You rob God of his glory, regardless if you think you're doing something good. If you're operating out of selfish ambition, out of bitter jealousy, you are robbing God of his glory. You're robbing God of his glory. And what tends to happen is that a separation happens. A separation happens whether it's in relationships or particular to the context, a separation or a division happens in the church. A division happens in the church because we're operating out of our flesh, out of who we were, and we're leaning on our own understanding and loving good advice, loving moral advice. But man, the good news of Jesus is vacant. The good news of Jesus is absent in our lives. And what is really rooted at the bottom end of our hearts is selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. And what James then goes on to do in this section is that he gives you the result. He says, if selfish ambition and bitter jealousy is rooted in your heart, this is what it's going to manifest like in your life, right? It's going to manifest in earthly wisdom. It's going to manifest itself in unspiritual wisdom and then in demonic wisdom. And so the end result is disorder in every vile practice. That's the result. So what do we mean when we're talking about disorder? It means that everything you do is worthless because It is not infused by the power and ministry and person and work of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Everything that you do becomes worthless because it is not rooted in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And I know I'm going pretty fast on these verses. I just don't want to pass out if I'm honest. 
right? Um, <laughs> so I know I'm going pretty fast, and so that's ultimately what he's saying toward the end of verse 16. And then as we transfer into, or transition, excuse me, into verses 17 to 18. Actually, before, before I get there, I know I'm, I'm just going in light of breaking it down. Let me, let me give you some practical illustrations of, of earthly wisdom, of unspiritual wisdom, of even demonic wisdom. I'm gonna, I'll give you two. The first one, it will have been masked with, uh, with, with, with good intentions. So I've mentioned this before. Several years ago, uh, I was on staff at, a, at another church uh, in Denton, Texas, just north of Dallas. It's called Christ Community Church. And I, I worked with uh, uh, missional communities. And I remember, I remember going to Denton and really excited about the opportunity to simply work with a bunch of other guys in the North Texas area. And I think if you would have asked me, are you excited? What are you looking forward to? I probably would have told you a lot of those things. But what was rooted deeper in my heart was honestly selfish ambition. You see, I went to Denton Right? I went to Denton because I remember when Ross, he's the lead pastor, when Ross and I talked, one of the things that Ross had told me that they really needed a, a help in was, was things like discipleship and leadership development. And to me, I was like, man, that's, I would love to do that. I love uh, uh, investing and building up people. That, yes, I'm all in for that. And what I communicated to him was something that was good. Yet what I was keeping inside was, let me show you how it's done because you obviously don't know how to do this. That was a douche, right? I don't know if I could say that, but, but I was, but I was, and I, and I, and I mean that in, in the very, in the most biblical sense, right? Because I drove, I went up there with, with this intention of literally kicking down the doors of this church and saying, let me show you what it looks like to plant a church. Let me show you what it really looks like to raise, to raise men, and I was motivated by selfish ambition because I wanted at the end to be elevated so that others can see what I had done or hoped to have done. And when they saw it, I can say, see, I did it without you. I did it without you. Or uh, part of what I was experiencing was I wanted my, my, my wings to, to expand, right? I wanted to open my wings and, and, and do other things outside of the valley. And I wanted to be able to say, look at what I did when I left. All of it, none of it, in fact, and I would say the, the, the first half of my stay in Denton, not a single portion of it was rooted in, 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 in guidance by the Holy Spirit. It was rooted in selfish ambition. It was rooted in jealousy because I wanted to show others that I can do it somewhere else, right? And what ended up happening to me was that everything was stripped. Every luxury was stripped from me so that... I would recognize who God is. But check it. So that I would recognize who God is, period. Not so that I can do well in Denton. Not so that I can do what I had hoped I was going to do in Denton. Not so that this ministry would be blessed or so that this church would grow. But solely and most importantly, so that I would know who God is. And I would come to this place of humility that's found on my knees found on my knees because I realized how much I need Jesus and how much I cannot save myself, right? 
The second one, it's not so elaborate. The second story is more, I think about myself when I don't, when we're looking at earthly wisdom, I think about myself when I lose sight of the good news. See, several times, uh, especially when, when my son uh, does some stuff, I'm very quick to, uh, to, to switch gears and say, man, you know, you need to do this better. If you do this better, then I will reward you. And what I tend to do or what that communicates to my son is, hey, if you do these things right, then I'm going to love you. That's what it communicates to my son. And so fathers, that might be some of you. That might be what you communicate to your kids. If you do these things, if you don't do these things, then I will love you. And so what I'm leaning on is good advice. I'm leaning on uh, uh, moral parenthood, but I'm not leaning on the sufficiency of Scripture and the good news of Jesus. That when God looks at me, he doesn't say, if you do these things, I'm going to love you. What he says is, I've already loved you, and I've sent my son to die for you. I've sent my son to die for you, paying for your sin, and so your account has now been credited with perfection with blamelessness, right? That's something that I, I don't preach to my son as often as I should, right? It's usually something that comes after the fact. We'll sit down and I'll talk through it. But initially, fathers, if this is you, let me tell you, that's our parents. If this is you, that's what you communicate about the gospel when we tell that to our kids, and so those are examples, those are practical examples of what it looks like to operate outside of the Holy Spirit's guidance. That's what it looks like to operate within earthly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom. And so James transitions. Now we'll go ahead and transition into verse 17. And I think the beginning of verse 17 is really important. And if you read it too fast, you'll miss it, right? Verse 17, he opens by saying, but the wisdom from above is first pure. He's going to go into a list of things that wisdom from above is. We're not going to cover the list just yet. What we're going to cover is his opening statement. He says, the wisdom from above is first pure. That suggests that godly wisdom, biblical wisdom, wisdom like Jesus is not something that you and I obtain. It is something that is given to us through the person and work of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. It's not something you just go for. Godly wisdom is the Holy Spirit at work in your life, transforming you in accordance to the truth of the Scriptures. That's what it means to be godly. That's what it means to have godly wisdom, because as he graces us with this wisdom, all of a sudden we can discern right from wrong. We understand our relationship with God, and we're able to move forward. Wisdom that comes from above is wisdom that is given to us by God. Feel me on that? So the wisdom that you and I strive for isn't always right and isn't always godly. And so what you and I need to do then is evaluate our lives and our hearts to see whether or not we're operating within the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? 
And so he goes on and gives a list, right? So, but the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open, reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, right? So he gives this first list of, man, wisdom that is not biblical. It's earthly. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. Then he goes on to say, but wisdom that does come from God has these other characteristics. The first one is that it's pure. That means that what motivates your heart, what is driving you is a love for God, which pours into a love for others. I get it. That's easier said than done, right? I, I'm not knocking that. I'm not saying like, you got to understand this now, go and do it. I know we're going to stumble in this, but when we're looking from a wisdom or a, a biblical perspective of godly wisdom that is pure, that means that what motivates us is a love for God that transi- translates into a love for others. Now, here's my challenge. This has been a conversation we've been having for the past couple of weeks. Here's my challenge when it comes to that. When it comes specifically to being motivated by a love for God and a love for others, for all I know, because I don't, but the Holy Spirit does, right? For all I know, maybe right now you're in your seat convicted. Maybe you're thinking about someone. Maybe you're thinking about what God has done in your life this week, and he led you to think about someone, and man, you just want to love on them really, really well. That's cool, and I encourage you to do that. What does it look like? Here's the question I have for you. What does it look like to be motivated by a love for God that translates into a love for others during the middle of the week when you're not at church? What does that look like on Tuesday at 2 o'clock? Not at community group. Not on Sunday mornings. Not on your daily Bible app. Right? Not your podcast. I'm talking about like, in the middle of the week, during the daily grind of the normal, of the ordinary, what does it look like to be motivated by a wisdom that is pure at, on Tuesday at 2 o'clock? What does that look like? That would be my challenge for you, right? Or my question for you. The second thing that he says is that this wisdom is peaceable. The person who is peaceable understands that they were once enemies of God. If you don't know this, please, please hear me on this. At one point... If you belong to God, at one point you were considered an enemy of God. But upon his goodness, his mercy, and his grace, as he has chosen and called you to himself, you are no longer enemies, which means you are not at war with God anymore, which means you understand peace. And all of these characteristics, when we're looking at uh, purity, uh, gentleness, when we're looking at... um, when we're looking at peaceable, um, full of mercy. I want you to know that if you're going to operate, or as we should be operating out of these characteristics, out of these things that, that, that are considered godly wisdom by James, if we're going to be operating out of them, we're going to be operating out of them, not because we got it figured out, but because we're people, we are sinners in need of the same ones. We are in need of someone reminding me that I am not at war with God anymore. I am in need of someone. I am in need of someone to remind me that what should motivate me is my love for God on Tuesday at 3 p.m. when no one's at the house. I'm not around other Christians. I need to be reminded that what, what should motivate me is a love for God that translates into a love for others. The third thing he says is gentle. Now, here's, here's what I'll say about gentle. One thing that you can say about gentle is someone who's not pushy. How many of you have pet peeves? 
There's like one person, and this is three people that have pet peeves, right? <laughs> well, y'all didn't raise your hands, so you apparently don't, okay? okay only three people do, right? <laughs> you have pet peeves. And uh, like my wife has pet peeves, right? And uh, my wife has pet peeves, and sometimes I push them on purpose <laughs> because I was, you know, I'm one of four brothers. And so that's what we did, and I forget she's my wife, not my brother, and I shouldn't do that. And, uh, <laughs> and so, so when I, when I do that though, what, what, what's her react? What do you think is her reaction? What was that? Right. She slaps. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> she slaps with her words. Um, and so when we're looking at someone who is gentle, we're looking at someone ultimately, man, who isn't pushy. That doesn't mean you're not firm in your, in your belief. That doesn't mean you're not firm in what God says in his word. That doesn't mean that, but it does mean that you're not pushy. Additionally, it does mean that you understand something else like reconciliation. Remember, if you're an individual that is uh, operating out of being peaceful, right, or peaceable, like, like James says, that means that you're not at war with God. And if you're not at war with God, that means you understand that you have been reconciled through the blood of Jesus. You have been reconciled to the Father, which means you now have a relationship with the Father, which means someone who is gentle should pursue reconciliation. And if you're not pursuing reconciliation, that doesn't mean you're pushy, right? That means that you're just pursuing one another. And if you're not pursuing reconciliation, that's not necessarily operating out of the Holy Spirit, that's not operating out of the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And the seven things that James lists here are things that we should do and look towards if we're going to operate out of the Holy Spirit. The next thing is, so we go from peaceable to gentle to, to open to reason. This means that, number one, you're going to listen before you speak. You're going to listen before you speak, right? That means that when someone comes to you, you're going to let them finish, Okay, you're going to let them finish before you say anything, right? If you want a good verse to memorize, what is it? It's, it's James uh, chapter 1, verse 29, I think. I, I may be totally off, right? This is where he says that we ought to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, that the righteousness of God does not come out in anger. When we're talking about open reason, it means that you listen before you speak, you listen before you speak. You hear what the other person has to say, and then you can speak. Some of the most wisest people in our church are people that will listen to you and then speak. Some of you are so ready to interrupt. Some of you are so ready to give your point on why you're right and how much you know, and yet you lose sight of biblical wisdom. And wisdom is something that you do. It's not just something that you know. So stop chalking it up to it being the same thing. The next thing, right? So we went from open reason, full of mercy and good fruit. So those two are paired together, right? So mercy is a, is a motivation that, that comes from the heart. Why is it a motivation that comes from the heart? Because we have been people that have been given much mercy, we have been people that have been given much mercy. God, in his goodness and kindness, sent his son to die for us. Right? Pardoning us, giving, uh, extending mercy 
taking on our sin, absorbing our sin, and then in exchange, giving us his righteousness, crediting our account blamelessness. When you extend mercy, it's not because you have it figured out. It's because you're an individual who's just as in need of it. And when you extend mercy, fruit is produced. Think about your walk with Jesus. As mercy has been extended to you, is there fruit that has come from that? The same concept applies when we extend mercy to others. And then the last two, I just paired them up, right? Impartial and sincere, right? That you love everyone the same. We, we talked a little bit about this. I think it was in chapter two of James. That you love everybody else, the, you love everyone the same. That you don't compartmentalize people. This is the rich, this is the poor, this is the hipster, this is the cool. Whatever it is you want to look at. You don't compartmentalize people, but that you love people the same. But you're loving people the same as someone who has first been loved by God. That's why we do it. Remember, all of these characteristics of godly wisdom, we operate in them as individuals who are in need of them, not because we've figured it out and not because you simply know a lot. You operate out of them because you're an individual in need of each one. In verse 18, the last verse, he closes by saying, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Biblical wisdom produces righteousness. And righteousness bears fruit because it is a righteousness that we did not obtain. You did not earn this. The righteousness that has been given to you, you being counted as righteous, is not something that you obtained, but was a gift upon the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So, if you're a Christian, that's really, really good news and a wonderful reminder. The wonderful reminder about the righteousness of God is not only did you not obtain it, but you are forgiven. And because of His mercy and His kindness, He has given you his righteousness. At the cross, he absorbed your sin and in exchange gave you his righteousness. The reformers called this the great exchange. You are forgiven. If you're not a Christian, maybe you realize you're not or you're just simply not a Christian, this is the part that is really good news. You don't have to work for favor now. God accepts you on the condition of faith. So repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. The life of the Christian is marked not by do, but by finished. Right? This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, uh, the, the Beatitudes, and Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That touches in a little bit about being peaceable. And it closes really well with this last part in verse 18, right? Where he says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Remember, if you belong to God, you are no longer at war with God. 
you are no longer at war with God. And if you are no longer at war with God, then you are called son and daughter. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we close our time, as we close our time, Lord, um, Lord, I pray that our lives would be marked by, by biblical wisdom, not just by knowledge. Lord, it is really easy for us to rely on what we know and what we've known. But we also know that that doesn't mean that we have wisdom. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a people that pursues biblical wisdom for the purpose of becoming more like Jesus, which means we pursue things like humility, a humility that we cannot obtain on our own, but simply recognize in light of who you are and what you've done. Lord, as we close this time out, let us, let us uh, evaluate the, the areas of life that you've placed us in. You've placed us in a church family. You've placed us in a home. You've placed us in different kinds of jobs. Biblical wisdom should be uh, a reflection in each one of these facets of our lives, not just on Sunday morning and not just um, at a church function. Lord, let us be a people that is marked by biblical wisdom. Let us be a people that is marked by our pursuit of Jesus, bringing you glory, not ourselves. And Lord, that if, that if we have been robbing you of glory, that if we have been leaning um, heavily on earthly wisdom and even operating out of who we were and maybe even who we are, Lord, I pray that you would have mercy on us as we repent of our sin that you would forgive us of our sin so that we would worship you holistically, so that we would live for you and bring you much glory. And Lord, as we transition into a variety of things in the next couple of minutes, these are all, these are all ways, opportunities for us to respond to the work that you are doing. So, Lord, as we go into a time of, of tithes and, and offerings, at the end of the day, it's not about money, but it is about trusting you. And so this is where we give you our stuff. This is where we relinquish the control we think we have. This is a wonderful opportunity to worship you. This is a wonderful opportunity to, for it to be a testimony of what you're doing in our lives right now. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.